Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take a Bible in hand now and turn again to the Gospel of Luke. I say again because we're studying verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 8 and have been for several Sundays. We come now to the 22nd verse of Luke chapter 8. Now you know that uh, here in this particular chapter, the Lord Jesus is presented as going from village to village in the region of Galilee. There he's performing miracles. He's teaching with great power and um, doing a lot of things that were, were attracting attention, so much so that we saw last week that there was such a crowd following Jesus that even his own family members couldn't get in to, to speak with him. And so that brings us today to uh, the 22nd verse of Luke 8, and let's read what the Scripture has to say. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? and they obey him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now you can imagine the toll that it would take on a human body to be constantly in front of people, constant needs all around you, to be in such demand. And we have to remember that not only is Jesus God in the flesh, he was also human. He got thirsty, he got hungry, and he got weary. And I suspect that was the case. And he said to the disciples, let's get in the boat and go over to the other side. And he was simply worn out. Now, I have never visited the Holy Land. I hope to one day, if the Lord allows, and I want to visit this Sea of Galilee. It's a very interesting body of water. It really is a lake. In fact, that's what the New American Standard I've read from calls it. Let us go across the lake. It's about 12 miles long at its longest point, only about six miles wide. It's below sea level, and it's surrounded on three sides by highlands. Some hills often to the north and to the west, and the Golan Heights, a plateau to the north and, and to the east. And the source of this lake is the melting snow that comes off of Mount Hermon, and it comes into a stream before it empties into this topographical bowl, really a valley. And this bowl fills up, and that's what we know today as uh, the Sea of Galilee. And then on the south end of the lake, it empties out again and continues on as the Jordan River. Well, because the land was so fertile around this lake, not unusual to see farmers out there. Remember here in chapter 8, Jesus told that wonderful parable of the four soils. And it's likely there, there might have been even a, a farmer out sowing his field at the time that Jesus was, was doing this teaching. But Jesus' disciples weren't all farmers. In fact, at least four of them we know of were, were fishermen, James and John and Andrew and Peter, they grew up in and around this lake. They made their living on it. They were pros at handling a boat. And so when Jesus said, let's get in a boat, uh, they didn't hesitate. And the, and the Greek word here is a little sailboat. 
And it was a boat large enough for uh, 12 or 15 men. And, and so they get in and, and they push off. Well, sudden storms are not uncommon, even today in that part of the Sea of Galilee, especially during the winter months. Uh, the winds come howling down off of the plateaus and off the, the highlands and they swirl around this topographical bowl and they churn the lake until the little boats are shaken like an earthquake. In fact, some of the gospel writers, the phrasing that they use in the Greek of how it was to be in this boat was mega seismos. A big earthquake is what it felt like. Well, I've not been in an earthquake and I've not been in a storm at sea and I hope to keep those two things intact for a long time. But I've been told that being in a storm at sea is one of the most frightening experiences any human can have. Knowing that any moment the ship could break apart and sink or be swamped by the next wave over the bow. There are a number of stories in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that convey that sort of drama. I think of Jonah, who when he was on the run from the will of the Lord, found himself in a stormy sea. I think of the Apostle Paul, who was shipwrecked more than once in the book of Acts. And here we have this story in the Gospels. But my favorite passage in the Bible about a stormy sea is in the Psalms. Psalm 107, in fact, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible to preach. Because in it, we find four illustrative vignettes in which the psalmist compares God's act of redemption and saving his people to four terrifying circumstances of life. He says, being saved is like being a prisoner on death row with no hope of pardon or parole. And you cry out to God and he hears you and he opens the prison bars and sets you free. He compares it to being a sick man on his deathbed the doctors give him no hope of recovery. He calls out to God from his deathbed. The Lord heals him and saves him and he walks away. He, he compares lost humanity to travelers in the desert who lose their way and they've run out of water and they surely will die. They call out to God and he leads them to a safe city. And then he says this in the 23rd Psalm. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the work of the Lord, his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits end. And so here's this fourth illustration. Lost humanity are like sailors on a stormy sea. With every movement of the ship, they lose their bearings. He says they stagger around like men who are on alcohol. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses and caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of of men. David was describing humanity's sinful condition because of our disobedience to God. The consequence of our own sin is that we often find ourselves in turmoil and in a storm. But it has been noted, rightly so, that sometimes as Christians we find ourselves in storms not because of disobedience, but because of obedience. And that's exactly the case here in the passage that we just read, Luke chapter 8, verse 22. 
What I mean is that because of our disobedience to God, sometimes the consequences are painful. Sometimes the Lord allows our sin to go to its natural conclusion as he did with the prodigal son who lost everything and found himself eating with pigs. Sometimes the Lord intervenes with chastening to bring us back to the right way. Those the Lord loves, he chastens, the scripture says. That is through his corrective discipline. But every time we suffer as Christians, it's not necessarily because of our personal sin. Sometimes the Lord uses difficult and painful circumstances to teach us more about who he is. And I believe that's exactly the case here in our text today and why I title this message, Teaching Up a Storm. Even when Jesus was asleep, he was teaching his apostles. He used the storm that night to teach some great lessons about his character and about his power that would be much needed when he was no longer with them. Don't you find yourself as a parent constantly teaching your kids looking for those teachable moments because you know in just a short amount of time you're not going to be there physically with them to make those decisions for them. So you're looking for those opportunities to teach. And Jesus did that with his disciples. And it begins here in verse 22 with a simple command. Now on one of those days, that's a typical day, Jesus had been teaching and people were following around. He was pressed about by the crowd he and his disciples got in the boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. Now you notice that they were absolutely obedient and immediately obedient to Jesus. Now we can't always say that about the disciples, that they were always obedient or certainly not immediately obedient. But in this case they were. Jesus says, let's get in the boat and go. They didn't argue. They just did what he says. And you think, well, that would mean they would have clear sailing. Surely Jesus wouldn't command them to do something that was going to put them in danger. So the question then, did Jesus know the storm was coming? Well, you bet he did. After all, he's God. And one of the characteristics of God is that he's omniscient. He knows everything. Jesus knew the storm was coming. It's not because Pete Delkus told him. It's because he's God. I heard a few years ago a, a pastor who was interviewed for a newspaper article after one of these great, uh, what the newspaper article said, natural disasters in the Caribbean that killed a lot of people. He asked this prominent pastor, where was God in the storm? And that pastor, thinking he needed to, to defend God, said, God was as surprised by that storm as you were. Well, listen, I don't care to serve a God who's surprised by the weather, do you? Jesus knew this storm was happening, and, and I believe perhaps even caused it to happen so that um, he could teach this great lesson. Because as God, and what we teach about God in this church, is that everything that happens, he either allows or causes directly. And so that's the command, get in the boat. Secondly, there's the calm. You notice two very distinct and different reactions to the same event. Here's a storm happening and the disciples are panicking. They're screaming. If you put all of the accounts in the Gospels of this story together, you'll, you'll see that they were saying a lot of different things. Luke says they were saying, Lord, uh, wake up, uh, we're about to perish. Well, they were saying things like that, but that's what happens in an emergency, especially when there's a large crowd of people. People go into chaos mode, and they're screaming things spontaneously, and all this chaos was going around. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. See, Jesus knew the storm was coming, 
they did not. He wasn't surprised. He was calm. They, they were panic. Well, the Bible says that as Christians, we face all sorts of adversity in life. This metaphor of storms is often used to describe the difficult times in every life. We, we like to say into every life a storm must come. But as Christians, we should not be surprised when they do. In fact, Peter says that directly in 1 Peter 4.12. He's writing to a group of Christians in the first century church who were beginning to feel the heat from the first waves of persecution. And they're confused by that. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The Bible describes the testing of Christians. It can come from a lot of different directions. It can come from... uh, our flesh, it can come from the world, it can come from the devil, it can come from those things that the Lord allows into our life or even causes in our life to test us. There were many occasions when Jesus warned his disciples about testing and suffering and trials that would come about because of their relationship to him. He said, a servant's no better than his master. You'll notice that's exactly what they call him here when they wake him up, master, master. And he used that to say, the servant's not better than his master. We know how they treated Jesus. If you've forgotten, this is a great week to be reminded and go back to read the Gospels of how they lied about Jesus, how they slandered his good name, how they spit upon him and beat him with their fist and put a crown of thorns upon his head and whipped him, humiliated him publicly, stripped him of his clothing and his dignity, at least they tempted to. And ultimately put him to death on the cross. And Jesus said, a servant's not better than his master. In fact, when he was talking about what it means to be a Christian, he told people to count the cost, to take up their cross and follow him. And a cross was an executioner's device, not an ornamental piece of wood on the wall. It was not a piece of jewelry. It was the worst instrument of death that uh, humanity had devised up until that point. But Jesus says there's a blessing that comes with suffering for the sake of Christ. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here in Luke chapter 8, What the Lord is doing is preparing these apostles for the time when he will not be there and the pressure and the heat of persecution would come in full force. Now think about the things he'd been teaching them as they walked and talked with him. They had seen him heal the sick dozens and hundreds of times. Here in chapter 8 they had witnessed Jesus raise a man from the dead. We know that he would feed the masses miraculously in their presence. He would walk on water. But now they have seen him control the weather. And he's leading them to the unmistakable conclusion that he's more than a prophet. He's more than an Elijah figure or a Jeremiah figure. He is God. 
and he's God in the boat with them. So they don't have to be panicked or full of anxiety when the storms of life come. They need not as long as they know Jesus is with them. I've often said I think the most important knowledge and conviction that anyone can have is that God is with them. This is what David says in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, David? Because thou art with me. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. They need not fear. In fact, the very last thing that Matthew records that Jesus said to his apostles had to do with this. We love to quote the Great Commission. I do too. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey whatsoever commandments I've given you. But too often we stop it right there. The best part of that Great Commission is the last part of it. And he says, and lo, I am with you. How long? Always. Even until the end of the age. That's Christ promised not only to his disciples, but to all his followers. Well, thirdly, we come to the criticism. I hesitate to use that word. It's really not the greatest word to describe what Jesus does here. But it does start with a C. And I need a word that started with a C. And so Jesus uh, uses his words to cause them to think, would, would be a more appropriate way of saying it. Verse 24, they came to Jesus and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? That seems like an unusual question for the time. Where is your faith? I think most of us believe that we have faith, but the truth is we don't really know the quality of that faith until our faith is, is tested. And friends, rest assured, it will be tested. It's not if, it's, it's when and to what extent. James 1, 1 and 2, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Now he says not only are you going to encounter trials or testings, but they are multiplied. They are of varying kinds, not just one kind. Remember, they come in from different directions, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, here's the, the promise of Scripture that when we pass that test, we become stronger than we were before. It's the means, and I would say the primary means, of sanctification. And so, we often, when we're going through a difficult time, how do we pray? Lord, stop this. I do. None of us enjoy pain. None of us enjoy trials in the moment. But a sure sign of maturity in a believer is when they start viewing their trials, be they physical illness or financial struggles, problems in their family or in their church, as the means by which God increases their faith. Then we know that person's well along the path of sanctifications. These men did not have perfect faith. I've told you before, your pastor does not have perfect faith, and I've not met one of you that has perfect faith yet. We're all in the same condition. In fact, that is not a prerequisite to be a Christian, is to have perfect faith. 
In fact, Jesus said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. These men did not have perfect faith, but we know they had faith. Their lives and their deaths proved it. They had left their careers as fishermen and tax collectors and other things. Some of them left family, apparently, to follow Jesus. And they like to remind Jesus of that, too. Matthew 19, 27, Then Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then shall there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the generation, excuse me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and last first. See, the promise of Scripture has never been, if you follow Jesus, your life's going to be smooth sailing. Never has been a promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is if you follow Jesus, you can expect trouble. Those that desire to live God in Christ Jesus can expect persecution. We're not exempt from the storms of life. The promise is that this world is not really our home. The promise of Christian suffering is its temporary nature. That even though, as Peter says, we may be called to suffer, it is for a little while. Because we're just pilgrims passing through here. Now, when he says a little while, you need to know that may be a lifetime. That may be a hundred years or so, if you live that long. But even a hundred years is microscopic in the bigger picture of eternity. It is for a little while. And the rewards are eternal. He says, everyone, not just the apostles, everyone who's left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, and farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. It always makes me remember a story. A friend of mine told me who was on mission down in South America in the nation of Peru. And he and his traveling party traveled up difficult trail into the Andes Mountains where they encountered a beautiful little village. Had a little town square with a fountain there. There were businesses all around the town square and they went from business to business sharing the gospel. Intensely Roman Catholic area of the country. No one gave them an audience. No one certainly prayed to receive Christ except one local merchant. A middle-aged man who had grown up in that village all his life, who had a very thriving store, prayed to receive Christ. And they gave him some discipleship material, got him in touch with the closest missionary, and uh, they went on to the next village. A year or so later, that team came back to that same village, and to their surprise, they went back to the storefront where they had met this man and found it boarded up. They asked of his health, and they said, yeah, he still lives here. They pointed him to his house. They went there, and they asked him, what happened to your store? He says, well, when I received Christ as my Lord and Savior, and you baptized me in the fountain in front of all my friends and family members, and you all left, I was shunned by this community. 
I, uh, the, the local religious leaders told the, the people not to do business with me, and they didn't, and I lost everything that I had. And they were worried that he was going to abandon the faith, but just the opposite was true. He had progressed and grown and made great progress in sanctification in the year that they had been gone because he believed the promises of Christ. That all who have lost these things in this life will have more in the life to come. Jesus understood that these men were going to face incredible persecution after his ascension back into heaven. He was getting them ready for that and they needed to know that he was more than a traveling teacher. He was God who was with them no matter what they were going through. They would all need a greater faith in the the future. And when Jesus said that he would always be with them, he didn't mean that they'd never be in a storm or that they would never even die for his sake. What he was saying is that they need not panic. They need not fear. Nothing would happen to them and will not happen to us that he does not allow. And we know that he loves us and he always does what is right. And that truth led fourthly and finally to a curiosity, not on the part of Jesus, but on the part of the apostles. Look what it says. After the winds died down, after Jesus commanded the sea to be hushed, they were fearful and amazed. (laughs) Now, you'd think after everything got back to normal, the heart rate would go down, the blood pressure would regulate, but that's not what happened. After they saw Jesus perform this miracle, they were fearful and amazed, perhaps even more afraid than when they were about to die. And they began to ask the question to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And the reason they were afraid is that they were beginning to know what the answer to that question was. They were in the presence of God. And the right response of being in the presence of God when you're a sinner is fear and amazement. We see that in Isaiah. And Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And when he saw the Lord, he didn't introduce himself and say, hi, I'm Isaiah. Scripture says he went down in a heap before the Lord and said, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. When the apostle Paul was confronted By the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was blinded and went down in a heap. This was no longer a fear of dying that is described here. It's a fear of realizing they're in the presence of God. I wish I was a more creative person. I've often wished that, but I'm not. I don't think at 46 I'm going to start being. So I have to surround myself with those who are and enjoy the Lord's goodness through them. One of the pastors that I love reading is, is John Piper. You know, I quote him a lot. And one of the reasons is he thinks so differently than I do and brings things out that I never would see. And he loves to take stories in the Bible like this and imagine the conversations because I think too many times we think of these apostles as sort of super saints that are fundamentally different than us. They are not. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish, the base, or the common things of the world. These men were common as they could be. Fishermen, blue-collar people, uneducated for the most part. 
But God was pleased to use them for His glory. And, and, and so take courage in that, that, that God can use you and He can use people like me for His glory. And so their conversations were probably not much different than ones we would have had, had we experienced the same thing. And so I read this week a little story he put together about James, one of those fishermen who was in the boat with Jesus and how he would have responded to what he just saw. And so it goes like this. James leaned on the bow gunwale watching reflections dance on benign waves. He was trying to absorb what he had just seen. James knew this sea. He and John had spent most of their lives on it or in it. His father was a fisherman. So were most of his male kin and friends. His mind flashed the faces of some of them who had drowned in unpredicted Galilean windstorms like the one that had pummeled them barely a half hour ago. A seasoned boatman, James was not alarmed easily, but he knew a man-eater when he saw it. This storm had opened its mouth to swallow them all into the abyss. Terror had been in John's eyes when he grabbed James and yelled, We have to tell the master. They stumbled to the stern. How Jesus had remained sleeping while the angry surf tossed the boat around is itself a wonder. They woke up screaming, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. James would never forget the way Jesus looked at him. His eyes were at once potent and tranquil, not a trace of fear. Laying aside the blanket, Jesus rose to full height on the rear deck. James, fearing Jesus was about to be pitched overboard, reached to grab him, but Jesus was already shouting, Peace be still. No sooner had those words left his mouth than the wind was completely gone. The sudden hush of the howling was otherworldly. The waves immediately began to abate. Each disciple stood where he was, looking dumbfounded at the water and sky and at each other. And Jesus' gaze lingered for a moment on the steep hills along the western shore, and he looked around at the twelve and said, Where is your faith? He had looked right at James when he said the word faith. Now as James leaned on the bow, he turned Jesus' question over and over in his mind, where is your faith, James? When Jesus had first said it, James felt its intended rebuke. Didn't he trust God? Wasn't the Father with Jesus? He had thought he believed this, but the storm proved that all the confidence he felt when the pressure was off was fair weather faith. The Galilean westerlies had swept it away. He felt chastened and humbled. But the more James thought about the question, the more profound it became. Where is your faith? Where is it, James? When the storm hit, what did you trust? I trusted what my eyes saw. I trusted what my skin felt. I trusted the violent force that was tossing the boat like a toy and would have rolled us over any minute. I trusted the stories told by my father. I trusted the tragedies I remember. I trusted the power of the storm because storms kill people. And up until a few minutes before, this would have merely seemed like common sense. But Jesus had changed everything. As James looked back at the sleeping Jesus, the psalmist's words came to mind. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise and the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouse. Who then is this? 
someone who can command a killer storm to die when he pleases. Holy fear washed over him again. However, this fear didn't produce panic, but a deep, reverent joy. Dear friends, if you're here today, you are in one or two conditions. One is you're lost, which means even though you don't know it, you're in a storm-tossed sea. And maybe in the Lord's providence, through His Holy Spirit, He's caused you to see that this morning. He's brought you to a place of desperation and hopelessness. That's not bad. That's good. That is God working in your heart, calling Himself calling you to himself. And the only response you have is the same response that a traveler who's lost in the desert is about to to die would have. The same response that a prisoner on death row without hope for parole would have. It's the same response that a person lying on their deathbed with no medicine has, and that is, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. The same response these apostles had when they knew they were about to, to perish, Master, save us, we're perishing. And dear friend, I would call upon you to, to do that very thing today, right where you are, in your own heart, in your own mind. Lord, save me. Have mercy upon me. Here's the marvelous truth. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He offers that invitation to you. He calls you to Himself. He is a rescuer. He is a redeemer. But there, there will come a day where every one of us will, will stand before the Lord. And if you have not trusted in Christ, you've not repented of your sins, you've not called upon His name, when this life is over, it is everlasting too late. And you will face a storm the likes of which you can't imagine, the storms of God's wrath. But for the believer, see the promise for the believer is not that you won't face storms here. Promises you will face storms here, but the Lord will be with you. And when this life is over, you'll face not another storm for all of eternity. Because He has done everything that is necessary for you to have a right relationship with the Father. If you're a Christian here today, rejoice. Praise Him for what He's done. If you're not a believer, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Father, even through the weather, we see your divine power in nature. And the fact, Lord, that you have preserved us day after day is a reminder that you're also merciful. Father, the greatest act of mercy and grace was uh, Jesus' death on the cross. And Lord, as our mind turns to the cross this holy week, we pray, Lord, as believers that we'd be more thankful, more thoughtful, that we'd hate our sin more and love you more. Father, I pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. I pray your spirit would draw them as your word is proclaimed. And Father, I pray that uh, you would grant faith and repentance. And Father, I pray you would receive glory for doing all of that. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.